Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Previously on Electric Boogaloo. It would not be Joffrey. I was going to say, why not Joffrey? He's got a beautiful hair of hair. I don't, I just don't you, understand you, you are so Joffrey much more, hate. You're so much more you. pro Joffrey than I'll ever be. Welcome to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week we'll be talking about Chapter 7, that's Catelyn's second POV chapter, with Professor Donald Riggs. He is a professor of English literature at Drexel, with special emphasis on J.R.R. Tolkien and George R.R. Martin. He gets to read and think about a Game of Thrones for a living. That is what he gets paid to do. We'll also be checking in with Steve Osborne, who's done his first viewing of A Golden Crown. Steve's really getting into the show. I will also talk with Chad Carmichael. We'll be talking about the maesters, both as an institution and a few of the specific maesters that we meet in A Song of Ice and Fire. If you're interested in anything else that's going on at Bald Move, check baldmove.com. If you're interested in anything that I've written, you can check my website, ladonbooks.com, L-E-D-O-N-N-E, books.com. Before we get to my interview with Don, here is a short excerpt of my interview with Dr. Gregory Webster. I don't know, can you think of any particular characters or plot lines that diverge between the book and the show that that are of interest to you yeah the one that keeps on sticking in my craw is catelyn's character Uh uh-huh i think she kind of falls into this housewife trope yeah where she really doesn't want ned to go south in the show yeah she wants to preserve her domestic arrangement with him and whereas in the books she really is a political creature of the south she really really thinks that ned needs to go do his duty and against his objections and she's worried about the political fallout if ned doesn't go south so he's she's really trying to push him out the out the front door of winterfell and at one point in the book Tyrion notes that catelyn's play to capture him and then go to the Eerie is a really, really smart play. And in fact, he says that she has outwitted him at every turn. Yeah. Now Tyrion's supposed to be the smartest guy in the book so far. And I don't get the sense that the show quite portrays Catelyn as this really politically savvy person. Oh, but she, yeah, she's, um, man, there's, there's so much going on in those early chapters. With Kat, I think one of the most revealing things is this: when she uh, she gets this uh, letter from a rider in the night. It's a message through Maester Lewin, right? That was given to Catelyn in a language only she understands, because she invented right. with Lysa, right? And according to the story, from her perspective, she reads it once and burns it. Yes. And only after she burns it does she tell the men in the room what it said. Yeah, so that's, that's the thing that like, gets me about the order of it. It's like, okay, so you've read you know, what is ostensibly a secret message between you and your sister, and then you, you, know, you set it on fire. So it's like, what else was in that message that she didn't say? Right. You know, or what else you know, might be like, what? You know, maybe I'm getting conspiratorial or so, but like, you know, we learn later on that she poisons um, uh, John Aaron yeah. at the at the uh, request of Peter Baelish. And so it's like, and we know that, you know, Peter Baelish and Lysa and Kat all have this, you know, really interesting uh, relationship growing up. 
And so it's like, what is what is going on there? And we know that we also know that um, Hoster Tully had you know huge political aspirations, and that's one reason why uh, the phrase, or in particular um, uh, the Walder Frey, you know the old Walder phrase, particularly pissed off at the Tullys, is because Hoster you know will never marry you know any of his uh, relatives, and so there's yeah she's definitely at the center of this uh, political web that what's yeah what's going on there. And now, Donald Riggs. Don, we are focused on Catelyn Stark's second POV chapter. Uh, Ah, yes. All right, so Don, I would like to go ahead and do a a brief synopsis of this chapter. Mm -hmm. And then we can fill in any gaps in our conversation. Yes. Here's my synopsis. This is Catelyn in a post-coital conversation. (laughs) And this is Ned at the window announcing uh, as he's staring out at the grounds of Winterfell that he has decided to decline Robert's offer to be Hand of the King. Catelyn doesn't just object, she strenuously objects to this. As they're discussing this, Lewin interrupts the conversation and comes in. Really, we're introduced to Maester Lewin for the first time as he enters the room and announces that he has a secret message, which Catelyn deciphers as a secret message from her sister Lysa. And the message we learn is that John Arryn was murdered. Lysa has accused the Lannisters of this. And what follows is a conversation on what to do next, and Ned feels like he's forced into deciding to accept Robert's offer to go south and serve as Hand of the King, which means that the family is going to be split up. And this causes consternation for Catelyn and Ned. And it is also decided at that point that Jon Snow will travel north to the Wall with Benjen. So, Don, you can talk really about whatever you want. You could talk mm-hmm. about one of these characters or a theme or a plot point, or you and I can just climb the ladder of chaos together. Ah, uh, yes. The thing is that reading this chapter, after having read all that has been printed, I see it very differently. I mean, I see, for example, authors, they misdirect us by giving us false clues, or actually they're real clues, but they, they point the wrong direction. So this is what's happening here. So uh, you and- think that Martin has withheld key bits of information and provided just enough information to misdirect us at this point. Well, yes, because the secret message, it's for the eyes of Catelyn, not even for Eddard Stark. She says that she reads it, it was hidden under the floor of the box of this, you know, eyepiece that was in it, a lens implying for those who can see. Right. uh, And it's written in a secret language that Kathleen and her sister Lysa had developed when they were girls. Yeah, okay, so this so, does two things, I think. Mm-hmm. This both authenticates the author. Yeah. It, you know, th- it has to have been Lysa Arn who wrote this. Right. If only Kathleen yes. and Lysa know this language. And secondly, it's spycraft, right? Right. Yes, it is. So the thing is that what we are given, we think is absolutely irrefutable. It is true. And what we don't realize is that there is a hidden, unreliable narrator. And I did not find this out until Mm. uh, much, much, much later. In fact, I, I didn't even pick it up at the time when I was reading it. And at this point, we haven't even been introduced to Peter Baelish. So That's we have right. no idea about, I mean, yes. clearly there could be a conspiracy. We just don't know a whole lot about what is going on. Exactly. Just as the characters do not know a whole lot about what is going on. Right. They know some things that we don't know. We know some things that they don't know. Right. Well, to me, Martin is laying the tracks for mm-hmm. what I'm. what I guess we should view as the detective novel element of this, mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. book, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a, bi- a bigger question, but mm-hmm. there are aspects of horror in this book. There are yes. aspects of fantasy in this right. book, mm-hmm. although those are somewhat subdued. Yes. And the, the backbone of this book is something of a detective novel. It is. Who killed John Aaron? Right. And in fact, it turns out that he was probably killed 
by someone putting some of the tears of lice, L-Y-S, or lice, I guess, lice, which is a poison that is colorless, tasteless, and cannot be detected by their primitive methods afterwards. Uh It's kind of interesting that tears of L-Y-S and lysa being the similar spelling, at least, and possibly pronunciation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. and and the thing is that as as Ned later points out later in this book, okay, it's just in the first book. He's talking to Meister Pycelle. This is in King's Landing, and, and he says so. He could have been poisoned by someone he knew, and so then that shifts the list of the possible suspects. Right, and we also know that this world has has particular notions of. A masculine ways to die and masculine ways to kill, right? That's right, yes. And then there are feminine ways to die and feminine ways to kill. Or we and could even poison. say, mm-hmm. yeah, subordinately masculine. And yes. and poisoning is like a coward's... Yes. It's a, <laughs> it's a feminized yes. killing exactly. in this it world. Is. With this wrong attribution of murder of John Aaron, we are skewed from this very early point first time I was teaching this, one of the students said, you know, I just really hate the Starks. They're so stupid. (laughs) And uh, I said, well, who do you like? He said, oh, the Lannisters. They know what they want and they get it without any problem. (laughs) And I I asked her, well, what are you majoring in? She said, marketing. And uh, so, I mean, this is, uh, anyway, this this was a shock to me because I had just looked at the Starks as being just virtuous. Well, but- and I think that Martin is creating a world that shows that someone like, let's say, Aragorn. Yes. There's something about Aragorn's virtue in Lord uh-huh. of the Rings. Right. That is armor to him. That's right. But what Martin is doing is he's created a world where virtue is something of a weakness. Yes. At least certain kinds of virtue. Ned Stark's notion, a hierarchy of of virtues, yeah, seems to be a liability for him. And I do believe that Martin is consciously mm-hmm. playing with this idea of, you know, is there such thing as a good knight? Is there yes. such thing as a good king? That's right. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you would know much better than I would, but I, I think that this is not uncommon in detective narratives oh yeah that the first and most obvious suspect Mm -hmm. certainly can't be (laughs) that's right the murderer right that's it exactly yeah yeah right so Uh, so so the first and Mm -hmm. most obvious suspect for catelyn is Tyrion. yes well at least one of the lannisters and then she she starts to focus specifically on on the imp right that's it that's it Mm mm-hmm Oh, that's such a wonderful scene when they meet by accident. She goes and she calls on everyone in the room who owed allegiance to her father. Everyone draws their swords. And she didn't know which she liked better. The fact that everyone drew the swords or the look on Tyrion Lannister's face. (laughs) That is just wonderful. And perfectly setting things up for Peter Dinklage. I, I really want to talk about Catelyn's character. Uh-huh. I find her mm-hmm. delightful on the page. Yeah, yes. And I can't help but note the 180 difference between the character's motives in the show versus the character's motives in the book. Yes. Especially Catelyn's feelings about Ned going south. Uh-huh. Rewatching the show, mm-hmm. Catelyn really is this typical housewife. Uh-huh who is resentful of her husband leaving home. And we see this over and over and over with women of heroes. Yes, yes. Where the the hero knows that he has to go save the realm. Right. So he's going to have to neglect his domestic duties for a time. That's right. And the wife is really sort of myopically focused on... on The the, the home, the house, the children, and her own needs... Yes. And I found it very refreshing that Catelyn's character didn't fit the trope, that she yes. wasn't just being forced in this typical annoying housewife uh, right. trope. She is, in my mind, she is very much a political creature of the South. Oh, yes. 
And she's trying to convince Ned that you can't just be myopically focused on the North. Mm. There are consequences for just focusing on the North. You have to think about how our relationship with these Southerners is going to affect us in the long run. She needs him to have more political power, even if it means losing her husband for a time. Yes, that's right. And she already did lose him back when he had joined Robert down South in the rebellion against uh, the Mad King. That's right. But that's a long time ago. In the show, Catelyn is trying to keep, she's trying to grip onto Ned to keep him from leaving. Right. And in the book, she's basically kicking him out the front door. That's right. (laughs) Saying, do do your duty. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Right? Don't be a a coward. Do your duty. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So, and, Uh, and it's just when he names with kids, he's going to take with him that she gets upset. Yes. Yeah. Uh, You know, the other thing about Catelyn, I mean, she just absolutely is not a naive person. Uh I mean, maybe she's hyper concerned with intrigue, but she certainly can't be accused of being naive. The first thing she does when she gets this secret coded message that no one else can read. Yes. Is that she throws off her covers like, you know, modesty be damned. Mm-hmm. makes a fire and burns the thing be, even before she tells the men in the room what's going on. <laughs> That's right. She is, not, yeah. she is leaving nothing to chance. She knows the mm-hmm. peril that they're in, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. I just enjoy her so much more on the page. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was curious about Catelyn's relationship to Ned Stark. In many ways, this relationship is... It's formal in interesting ways. Like in many ways, they know that they have a business arrangement, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) They're like co-business owners of Winterfell. And they're also a husband and wife with all Mm -hmm. the intimacy that comes with husband and wife. And I don't. And they both respect one another, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And they do have gender. They do play gender roles. But I'm wondering which, what is the order of concern here? Are they business Mm -hmm. partners first? Are they husband and wife first, or am I thinking about this wrongheadedly? No, I think there's a very dynamic tension between those two. I mean, the fact that Jon Snow, when he comes home with Eddard, is accepted as a byblow of Eddard's. Yeah. He accepts the fact that men have their own needs. And when they're away from their wives, they will have offspring from outside the blanket. In fact, she uh, says she does. She wouldn't even mind if he had fathered a, a dozen bastards. That's right. Mm-hmm. What she resents right. is not Ned's infidelity. She doesn't yes. really care. She would probably prefer that he wasn't unfaithful. But what, yeah. what she really cares about is just the constant visibility Mm-hmm. of Jon Snow that, that right. really is something of a black eye on uh, the otherwise unbesmirched honor of Ned and Catelyn, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The fact that she says that he looks more like a Stark than their legal children. Yes. Well, but, whatever the case, clearly views the boy with affection. And yes, this is a point of tension between Mm-hmm. Her and Ned, right? Yes, yes. I'd like to read a passage mm-hmm. just because I think that this gives us a very interesting view into Catelyn and Ned's relationship. Uh-huh. Catelyn softened then to see his pain. Ned Stark had married her in Brandon's place as custom decreed, but the shadow of his dead brother still lay between them, as did the other, the shadow of the woman he would not name, the woman who had borne him, his bastard son. So it's not just John that is the reminder of the woman that Ned will not name. It's also this other memory, the the shadow of Ned's older brother. It's almost as if Ned's older brother had been groomed for lordship, that Ned's brother would have made a great hand of the king, had made a great lord of Winterfell, and made a great husband to, to Catelyn. Yes, this is stu- this is nothing I've ever asked for. This is nothing I've ever wanted. I don't want to be hand of the king, uh, but at this point, he almost feels like he's being he's being forced to do his duty, a duty he didn't ask for. Yes, which is actually, as you point out, that's uh, what has happened with him is the Lord of Winterfell. 
that right. he had never been raised to be that either. Okay, I'm going to mention some notable introductions that we, uh-huh. we hear of for the first time in this chapter. Yes. We hear about Winterfell's Great Keep, uh, Winterfell's Glass Gardens, and the Hot Springs to warm uh, prominent bedchambers. Yes. We hear reference to the Mountains of Dorne. Uh, we hear about the Lens Crafters of Myrrh. Yes. We are introduced for the first time to Maester's Chains. And Ashara Dane is named. Yes. And Ashara Dane is the sort of the name that in rumor has been assigned to Ned, Ned's mm. mistress. I don't know yes. if, that, if, that, if that's, that's right. a, a good enough term for... The, the, the mother of Jon Snow. Right. And of course, Ned refuses to give mm. this rumor any leverage. And he asks who spread that rumor among yeah. his uh, retainers. And so he went and that never was, name was never mentioned again. <laughs> yeah, whatever Ned did to put his foot down, it, mm-hmm. it stopped these rumors in their tracks. Yes, yeah. Now, really- at one point in the chapter, Catelyn is sort of coming to terms with the idea that she's going to have to say goodbye to her two daughters. Yes. She can do it quite easily. In fact, what she tells herself is that Sansa will shine. She'll mm. positively shine in the South. Right. And that Arya needs to learn to be a lady. And, <laughs> and so, th- so this is an opportunity for her to go learn to be a lady. Yes. So you see right there, you see the, these expectations. Uh-huh. Two separate expectations for these two girls. Yes. That Sansa really needs some more polish, but she's yes. going to do very well. And Arya just needs to learn these fundamental <laughs> lessons mm-hmm. about being a, a highborn lady. Yes. And of course, we know that Arya learns different lessons. I really disliked Sansa for a long time because <laughs> she was just her in- insistent on these romanticized ideals as being reality it was just so blind to what was actually happening in reality. Nonetheless, you know, she has an inner nobility to her. Uh, right. So she is on the sort of on the border of high mm-hmm. mimetic and low mimetic. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and we are really interest, introduced to Sansa through Arya's perspective. And it is the perspective yes. of someone who just despises anything that would be highfalutin. Yes. That's right. Exactly. I have one yes. more question. It's a two part question. Oh, okay. Your friends and family. Which character in Martin's world would they most associate you with? Who, who do they think you are? And then my second question is, deep down inside, the character that you know who you really are. Oh, okay. They would associate me with one of the Meisters. <laughs> of course. Of okay. Course, of course. Uh, well, yeah. and there are different sorts of Meisters. There are uh, Meisters that are very uh, politically minded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there are Meisters who are sort of fuddy-duddies. Okay, they would associate me with Maester Lewin. Uh-huh, okay. Okay, and I would associate myself with, oh, what's his name? The the Maester at the Wall, who is the very old man. Eamon. Yes, Eamon. Well, I like this because Maester <laughs> Lewin has no tolerance for magical speak. That's right. He has no, He he thinks that these are... Mm-hmm. Old wives' tales, and you should give them no credence at all. That's right. But Eamon knows what's what. Absolutely. So, all right, wonderful. So, maybe, just maybe, mm-hmm. we could have you back on to talk about a chapter wherein uh, Maester Eamon features prominently. Oh, wonderful. Oh, that would be lovely. And now the interview wherein Steve Osborne admits that he's into dragons. Steve, how do you feel about trial by combat? Trial by combat's an interesting one, right? I mean, that's, uh, I didn't know that was an option. Well, let's imagine it is an option and that you declare it, that you have declared trial by combat. 
again, this feels like the citizen's arrest thing. You just say it. It's like, you know, parlay and, and Pirates of the Caribbean. For most of world history, you just declared something and people went along with it. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, I guess we have to. I mean, he verbalized it. I mean, that's an amazing concept, right? You could do that in tag where you would do like the no tag backs. Mm-hmm. You know, you just would just throw a rule out and then you would get bound to it. So let's say that you're in a position where you can declare trial by combat. And then the question is, do you choose a champion or do you do it yourself? I mean, is it always the same combat? Is it just a fight to the death or be like, all right, uh, trial by combat hearts. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, you know, and I'm like, am I trying to shoot the moon just to, to get out of a parking ticket or something? It's going to be a fight to the death. Okay. And uh, you can choose any champion from the video game Street Fighter 2. Do I have to play it or can... No, this is like a real guy. Oh, okay. A real guy. Like Dalzim's a real guy with real stretchy arms and whatnot. Yeah. Don't, you, don't you almost have to go with, uh, with Blanca? <laughs> well, because of the electricity? Well, there's the electricity. There's the... He could curl himself into a ball and just launch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel, like, I, feel like, I feel like the electricity... I would never not do that. Well, here's the thing about Blanca. He looks pretty formidable, right? Mm-hmm. However, I feel like M. Bison can also use electricity. And although he doesn't launch himself as a ball, he almost launches himself like a missile. Yeah, he is. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I feel like there's also just a, uh, a like, in the video game, it doesn't translate. But I think in real life, there has to be some sort of a psychological edge that Blanca holds, right? I mean, you're... Yeah, he's the intimidation he's, factor. He's green. He's hairy. He's got real sharp teeth. I mean, I feel like he's got an advantage just by saying he'll fight. Yeah, perhaps. Very perhaps. distracting. I don't know. Can you trust him? Like, is he gonna get? Is he gonna get hungry and leave? I, I don't oh, know if I, I trust see. it. So, so during, yeah. So you feel like he's more of like a Dothraki in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about. Let's talk about the Dothraki. So, um, number one, if you are pregnant with a baby, right. you have to eat an entire horse heart. Right, yeah. I like and I, like I don't how... know if it, I don't know if it has to be raw or not. It could just be a preference thing. I feel like the Dothraki, like their entire culture is based on, like they only had like old VHS tapes of Double Dare. <laughs> a lot of slime. Just slime and it's just, yeah, they just... They're like this is what we do. Yeah, you have to do this to get to the next. Like, and what? I mean, I, I guess I didn't quite understand. Like, if she couldn't eat it, what happens? I think she's gonna throw up. Yeah, but then what does that mean for the baby? Does that like? No one wants to throw up, dude. That's the consequence. Enough. Just period. That's just it, right? Like, especially th- like I mean, you think heart, horse heart is bad going down? Yeah. So, uh, so the heart, the heart thing, and then mm-hmm. we have the drama between Danny and her older brother Viserys. Right. And he's gotten a little, I mean, he's always been a little bit saucy, but I would say that this is his sauciest episode. This is, yes, as saucy as he gets, right? I mean, he's stealing dragon eggs. He's, he's the, pulling swords out and they're like a little sacred zone or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. And so my, so my wife, the little, little uh, tidbit here on this one, like my wife has seen the first season. It was a while back. And so, and then I think our free HBO ran out mm-hmm. or whatever. So, so she's, she's being very patient coming through the first season again, for my sake. This was one that she said, oh, you're going to like this episode. <laughs> and, and he wasn't, I feel like his sauciness got him killed. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was always flying pretty close to the saucy sun, right? I mean, this is the one. This is the moment where, you know, you got to be careful what you ask for. And then he gets himself the golden crown, right? I mean, this whole thing is about proxy leadership, you know. Uh, You're right. The, the proxy leadership because Ned's on the Iron Throne. Ned's on the Iron Throne. There's the trial by combat. So Khaleesi's really, is, I think, like probably like the biggest turning point for her character, at least at this stage. I mean, mm-hmm. we've already seen glimpses of it, but this is where she's all in, like a horse heart into her gullet, uh, into the Dothraki culture. Yeah, she's not, a, she's not a girl anymore. I mean, she's, she has the visage of a teenager in this story. Sure. But she's eaten whole horse hearts. She, is, she ain't uh, afraid of no hot eggs. <laughs> no hot eggs. She, she is willing to just 
watch her brother die and just she's just gonna take it in stride yeah and what a great juxtaposition too right you're kind of bookending too with the the concept of of burning heat and like i mean his head essentially becomes a hot egg at the end right mm-hmm. oh yeah i hadn't thought about that he is he becomes humpty dumpty yeah he gets the he gets the ultimate magic shell <laughs> And probably, and probably tastes a little bit better than Magic Shell. Uh, yeah, at least equivalent. <laughs> All right. I think in addition to Danny's character showing a, a little bit more complexity in this episode, I think that we're seeing a little bit more complexity to Drogo. Yeah, he, but he also seems le- like legitimately, like you could see that he doesn't just see her as a, as a possession. Yeah, uh, he's fallen for her. Yeah, and because she's taken the power, right? I mean, she's she's not only embraced the culture, but she's taken on a clear leadership role. Mm-hmm. And there's something there's a gravity to her, right? Willing to leave the essentially just sever the the familial tie to embrace this other culture. Uh, the moon door. Would you rather be hung or beheaded or fall to your death through the moon door? And that's a really tough one because I feel like there's a period of a moon door fall that you're kind of like, wee, <laughs> you know, like just a little bit. Well, if you could, I, I doubt I would be able to enjoy it, but it's all about the state of mind, right? If you have, if you know you're going to die, right? You know you're going to die and your head is on a block and you're just waiting for the ax to come down. I mean, that whole moment, there's nothing except anticipation and then death, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with being hung like you're like oh, i don't even know how long i'm gonna be hanging here will it snap my neck or am i gonna choke to death right but here you know you're gonna die but it, it may take a minute maybe the exhilaration kills you when we were kids we'd always hear that you would die before you hit the ground that seems like one of those quicksand things like, right yeah you, you kind of hear about it but it, maybe it's not real like sneezing with your eyes open sneezing with your eyes and my, my son just told me recently that one of his friends was able to sneeze with his eyes open yeah, you don't trust that kid. No, absolutely. Don't have not. that kid over, and you yeah, never ever let your son stay the night at that guy's that, house. That kid is a golem for sure. Yeah, that kid. You, you're gonna come home, and your son's gonna have like drank two shots of hydrogen peroxide because they thought it would get him high. I think that's how you tell it's a vampire: either the mirror <laughs> thing or the uh, sneezing with the eyes open. Exactly. That kid sneezes with his eyes open. You got. You got to get an army. Do not <laughs> let him cross the threshold. Any other thoughts on this particular episode? Uh, definitely my wife was correct. I did. I would enjoy it, and I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the end. Saw some sword fighting, so I was obviously happy, and I'm, and I'm willing to get on board with dragons. Oh, this is new. You're willing to get on board with dragons. Why is that? Um, I think it's done a pretty good job of slow, slow playing the dragon thing, right? So, like, to where I'm like, all right, there's something to this dragon as opposed to just being that dragons exist that they serve a purpose perhaps other than to just be fantastical so so they've teased you enough with this yeah it it was almost like hey guess what we might include a dragon and you were initially you were like yeah i'm not into dragons right and then a few episodes in no talk you know no mention of dragons and then every now and again a little peek into like the possibility of a dragon right and they teased you just enough it was like a long con. They it long really was. You, you come yeah. out the gate with dragons, and I'm and I'm probably out. That's good. Good to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Did I get your take on on which Street Fighter two character you would ask for your? Oh, your it, was, it was still Blanca. You still Blanca. I didn't talk you out of Blanca, huh? No. Maybe it's because of the whole dragon thing. It's interesting because you never chose Blanca as your as your champion when we were actually playing together. I had a hard time controlling him, and I think that there's a certain element of like if I don't have to control him. Uh-huh. Then I'll, I'll, I will defer to Blanca. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Here is Dr. Chad Carmichael on magic, monsters, and the machinations of the maesters. The first thing we learn about Lewin is that he has this very intimate relationship with the Starks. Yeah. He's basically served as Catelyn's doula or midwife or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that, you know, they are, they're like doctors, they're like teachers. And if you think about the warm feelings that you, that you have had in your life toward, if you've ever had a doctor that you really liked, mm-hmm. who took care of you, who helped you in a time of vulnerability, of need. Um, if you think of teachers who you've really liked and the warmth that can develop there. I mean, I think that the the chance of having a maester, if you're a lord, right, having a maester become something like a part of your family looks like that's a pretty, there's a pretty good chance of that. Yeah. Imagine your favorite. All right. So, yeah, let's imagine your favorite teacher combined with your favorite doctor. But then this person lives in your house with you. Yeah. And well, there's one other aspect to the relationship, which is at, at some point it says, uh, I think it might be in the third book that um, that maesters play a certain kind of role as a kind of status symbol. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. say more so about there's, that. There's even that. So I think the I have the quote here. It's every great lord has his maester. Every lesser lord aspires to one. If you do not have a maester, it is taken to mean that you are of little consequence. Mm. So it's kind of a marker for the big boys, you know. Right. Yeah. It's like Ned Stark is going to have a maester, but uh, the Car Starks aren't going to have a maester. Yeah, maybe that's it. And uh, and this suggests that in matters of state, Ned Stark is more important. He's a player. So it's an interesting institution. And I was talking with a friend who's a medievalist, Jana Matthews, who I've had on this pod before. Mm-hmm. And I sent her an email and I said, hey, is there any sort of medieval analog to an institution like this. And she said, no, there's really no analog here. It's almost like the maesters are a combination of uh, monastic orders, specifically um, Dominican orders. In fact, their, their garb looks a little bit like these medieval Dominican orders. Right. Which did focus on, you know, higher learning. Yeah, because they wear like gray, nondescript gray robes is it i'm not sure if it's robes yeah they're they're kind of wearing yeah robes basically which is why by the way when i first watched game of thrones i couldn't tell the difference between septons and maesters and i thought maesters were some sort of religious right uh representation Mm -hmm. and you think they're not you think they're not a religious group now huh I don't. I think that the maesters are very much not a religious group now because, well, let me say the other thing about what, what Janice told me. She thinks that Martin made a hybrid between the Dominican orders and these secular guilds like the, uh, the Masons. Like yeah. in medieval Germany, um, even surviving to the modern period, uh, you had these guilds. Mm-hmm. where it was like craftsman guilds and you would be yeah. really good at this particular thing. You become basically a master at this particular building art. And it required, you know, being an apprentice and it was very much a, an order in that way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it says at various points that the maesters, I think had sort of supplanted the alchemists mm-hmm. and the yeah. alchemists were clearly a kind of guild. Uh, right. Yeah, and so what we learned about the maesters throughout the books is that not only are they not religious or not specifically assigned to a religious order, they're almost pre-modern uh, or they're on the cusp of, of modernity mm-hmm. in the sense that they just detest superstition. And Lewin really does play up this role. 
he sort of serves as this voice of reason against snarks and grumpkins. Mm-hmm. You know, who, who, you know, the white walkers, this is all the white walkers are all myth. And mm-hmm. these dreams that you're having Bran, you know, they're just dreams and dreams are dreams. And then we learn that most of the people at the Citadel take the same view. They are very, they're very much a sort of scientifically minded group with very little tolerance for magic. Mm -hmm. And so much so that they really do despise this notion of dragons. I can't tell. I I agree with you that the image that's presented of the Maesters is an image of a no-nonsense kind of more scientific group of people Mm -hmm. who are just kind of skeptical of a lot of the more fantastic elements of the universe uh, of Martin's universe. Right. And I guess I can't tell whether that, that impression that we're given, I can't tell how representative that is of the Maesters as a group. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's a couple of things, right? Number one, we're given a scene with a lot of these, like, uh, I, I believe they're called either, what are they called, novices? Yeah, there's something along those lines. I can't right? remember if they're called novices or acolytes, or maybe acolyte is one step above novice. Anyway, I can't remember, but they're like, they're sure. kind of like the graduate students, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and this is a, this looks like a pretty diverse group of, you know, it's only, th- I think, three or four guys, but it looks like a, they have a diverse set of views about what to think about dragons and the rumors of dragons you know, reemerging and, and they sort of debate it. Right. Mm-hmm. And okay. So there's, there's one little data point is that among the graduate students, these things are not regarded as sort of settled by their status as aspiring maesters, but they're seen as a matter for debate. Right. Right. And then you've got this very mysterious, interesting character by the name of Marwin. I was just going to bring up Marwin. Yeah. Right. Who, who uh, clearly is very interested in magic. Yes. And that's his specialty. Well, and but he seems like an outlier. He's sort of presented as, if you're interested in that, in that stuff, really Marwin's the only one yeah. that's open-minded enough or curious enough to pursue it. Though, and, that said, they do have the Valerian Steel link that you can earn. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and they have allowed Marwin to specialize in that. Yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, it's obviously, I mean, I agree that he's sort of frowned upon. It's sort of like philosophy of religion. And uh-huh. <laughs> in philosophy, it's like, you know, you probably pay some little, if I'm being honest, you probably pay some little price for specializing in philosophy of religion. and But it's tolerated and you can have a career in that. Right. So Marwin is interesting because he's got a connection, seemingly, like Miri Mazdur, who ends up killing Drogo. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, doing dirty to Drogo, let's say. Yeah. She says that she studied with Marwin. She says something about Marwin having instructed her, and I forget the exact language, but it, but it suggests that he had been cutting bodies open with her right, right yeah and when you read that and you it, it immediately for me it reminds me of kyburn right kyburn who's sort of the the franken dr frankenstein character who that's right resurrects the mountain in sort of a, a zombie golem like fashion that's right sure uh, who's, who seems like the the other character in the story who would do something like cut bodies open <laughs> well yeah and the idea here is to extend human life beyond natural death, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which Miri Mazdur is able to do in a way for Drogo. Yeah. But maybe in a way that Kyburn ends, yeah. ends up perfecting or advancing. Right, right. With the mountains. That's all very interesting to me anyway. I think as a literary device, the Maesters are kind of brilliant. They almost stand in the story as a representative of general skepticism. Mm-hmm. And this is at least how Lewin functions. Yeah, you know, he's very much against superstitions. All of the weird warging and green dreams and talk of White Walkers and all of this business. Yep, Lewin is just going to sort of throw a wet blanket over. Sure. And one thing that makes that first book, A Game of Thrones, just brilliant is that it's a fantasy narrative wherein 
whenever something magical happens, I feel genuinely surprised yeah, and thrilled by it. Right. And I think part of it is because most of the people in the world have taken on this sort of maesters. Well, most of the people in the world are sort of rich elite people, right? Right. And so they've been instructed by the maesters and they've taken on this maesters worldview. That, right. They're sort of post-magical. Yes. It's almost like this is a world on right on the cusp of modernity. And yes. so when something, some monster from the bygone past shows up like a dire wolf, people really freak out. Right. They're not prepared yeah. from a maester's perspective to encounter something magical in that way. Right. Well, and Martin has this way of writing about these things. I don't quite know how he does it, but he presents these magical occurrences and he lets it feel like you're not really sure whether it was magical. <laughs> it's almost like if I see somebody do a magic trick in a, right. in a show or something that I don't know how they did it. And you sort of feel like, well, he had to have some kind of trick, some, some way that he did sure. sleight of hand or something, but you're yeah. not quite sure what it is. And in Martin's world, it's like, I feel like usually in a fantasy story, you basically have some sort of guide or something who kind of authoritatively explains to you, the reader, sure. that this is the way it works in this world. There's magic and, and there's rules to the magic and all this. And Martin sort of leaves all that out. And it's sort of like, it just happens and you just have to interpret it yourself. Even a few characters like uh, Melisandre and... Oh, totally. Um, yeah. And uh, let's see here, Beric Dondarrion. They're yep. clearly working with something supernatural, but they don't quite understand how to control it. Right. And they will defer in a way, in a lot of way, religious people will defer to like, well, God has this plan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know why. I don't know why I was chosen or I don't know why my, my, my sword can flame up whenever I want it to flame up. But I, I see it. So I see it with my own two eyes. And so it must be real. Right. And so even these, the experts in the world don't quite, they're not. Yeah, it's they brilliant. It's yeah, they don't quite know how to explain what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's like those, as you say, those dire wolves show up. And it's a little, it feels in the story a little bit like if a dire wolf showed up in our world, it would be like, yeah. wow, they found this huge wolf. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't know what to make of it. I would have questions, right? I wouldn't yeah. conclude that it was magical or, you know, somehow right. out of a legend. Right. Have you ever seen a medieval bestiary? No. Okay, so bestiaries are sort of these medieval attempts at creating an, an encyclopedia of the natural world. Mm -hmm. So you'll be flipping through this and you'll see, they're all illustrated. And you'll see a picture of a bear and it kind of looks like a bear, but the artist isn't great. And you'll, you'll hear about what the bear eats, but then you'll hear like the theological significance of the bear. Like you like, and you'll hear about wolves, like here's a wolf, but of course we know that the wolf represents Satan. So it's there, it's their sort of attempt at telling us about the natural world. And then right next to these bears and wolves, we'll find things like uh, unicorns yeah. um, and dragons. Sure. And, and they'll talk about them in the exact same way that they're talking about wolves and panthers. Right. And the idea here is that, you know, these British academics who've never seen a bear or a unicorn lump them all under this umbrella of these beasts that live somewhere else. Right. And I kind of get the sense that there are, you know, creatures. Uh, right, you know, right. Shadow cats and whatnot. And there's also talk of dragons and there's also talk of, you know, spiders as big as hounds. But if you've right. never seen any of these any of these things, how do you know how to distinguish one from the other? Yeah. So that's the, that's my my take on what how most people feel about dragons. Yeah, but okay, so like with those medieval um documents. Yeah. The those were written by pre-modern people, right? Yeah, right. The maesters are, this is what's so weird about the maesters is that they aspire to a, a kind of modern sure. approach. And, and yet you sometimes feel like saying like, why don't you go look if you're interested, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, but, but here's the thing about this. I mean, in this period, you hear stories. It's like, it's like these, right. 
It's like the the magic stag from the other world. That was right, right. someone in the next village actually saw it. I heard the story, right? Sure, yeah. So it's like I've never been lucky enough to see the magic stag, but but certainly it's it, it exists. Right, right. Um, and it, you know, in the medieval period, you've you've got the you know, you've got people that trying to legitimize folk stories, right? Sure. But I think you've that- also got other people like Spinoza, you know, yeah. who clearly, or you know, or Vico, or whatever. You've got these people that are just working on a different level. Mm-hmm. So you've you know you've got levels of academic rigor, I suppose. I think maybe in the Maesters, Martin is sort of exploring this interesting idea of like a person who aspires to be scientific. Mm but can't quite throw off all of their political agendas and all of their kind of hopes for what will turn out to be true Hmm. and that sort of thing. I mean, I I suppose we all do that, right? It's like uh, you get interested in a question, maybe in part because you kind of imagine the question being answered in a way that delights you. Hmm. Right. (laughs) And, and then that kind of, that kind of affects the way that you write about it, the way that you look into it the evidence that you notice, the evidence that you, that you don't emphasize or, no, or even notice. And I think maybe that's, that's sort of a little bit of what's going on. So do you remember how Tolkien deals with the elves' magic? When, I don't remember. Okay, so when the hobbits first encounter the elves, it's almost like they see it as magic, but the elves themselves are like, it's weird that you would call this magic because you call lots of other things magic. We just know how to do this stuff. And it's like the elves have this sort of technological know-how. Right, right. That seems magical to the hobbits. Right. And... Yeah, like an airplane would seem magical to an ancient person, right? Right. So it's almost like, for instance, uh, like in this world, you've got someone like Marwin who maybe, maybe has sort of a more scientific view on life after death or extending human life in weird ways. Yeah. I don't know if he's going to view it as magic in the same way that someone like Tyrion is going to view it as magic. Right. Um, It could just be that he's got better and greater access to the, to the Metachlorians. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's right. I mean, I think, you know, in a way, I think figures like Kyburn and Marwin are the scientific ones, right? Because they, yeah. it's like they, they are trying to tame the magic. They're trying to understand it and, and, and subject it to study. Yeah. And, uh, and these other maesters are sort of perhaps trying to stamp it out in a certain way where, mm. and, and, and there's something unscientific about that, right? It's like, well, you know what it makes me think of is, um, so it's, it's not known about John Wesley. Um, so John Wesley's the best known as the father of the Methodist denomination in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he wrote this very, very popular book at the time it was very popular. That was, it was a medical book because he was going around village to village and sort of treating people with these ailments. Oh, and, you know, doc- doctors during this period are, you know, they have like a bag of tricks and that's it. Yeah. So he writes this book and he's writing all about energy, like electricity. Mm -hmm. So in early America, we're sort of tinkering with, you know, what electricity is and how to harness it. Yeah. And he's writing all about electricity and he's got this system where he can sort of, he's playing around with it. Oh, interesting. And he's making advances with this, but he's, sort of attributing all of the power of this electricity to the Holy spirit. So he's, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's sort of creating a theological framework to make all of this, all of this electric stuff make sense. How oh, interesting. So it's almost like Marwin is, he's playing around with something that clearly he, he sees that there's something behind, behind the scenes that right. I can access. Yeah. I have this uh, quote here from, this is from dance. And this is a, a character named Barbary Dustin. And she's talking to Theon. And she's very, uh, she's very suspicious of the maesters as an institution. Right. And she says, isn't it clever how the maesters go by only one name? Even those who had two 
when they first arrived at the Citadel. That way we cannot know who they are truly or where they come from. But you, if you are dogged enough, you can still find out. And so she's mistrusting the institution, but also these particular maesters who, let's say, so, I mean, let's just imagine for a moment, let's say you have someone that was raised as a Lannister and they go to the Citadel and they study and then they, they kind of start spying on some house that they're assigned to. Right. That's not the Lannisters. Right. I think that there are a lot of fans who are generally suspicious that the institution of the Maesters, that there's more than meets the eye there. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, there are several indications that Martin is going to build up the intrigue of the Maesters in future books. Mm -hmm. Because Sam goes to the Citadel. And so Sam's sort of learning about the institution in general. We've got a character who ends up killing one of these novices, Mm -hmm. suggesting that there's going to be a number of political events that will orbit around the Citadel in these future books. This character of Marwyn, on the one hand, you know, he, he gives us maybe the most direct evidence that there's some kind of nefarious conspiracy involving the maesters um, uh-huh. when he says, he basically says that they killed the, the final dragons. That's where I was going. Yeah, sure. Right. As it, as if they had removed, they had sort of removed magic from the world, which kind of complicates at least the, the earlier maesters relationship to magic. Is it that they don't believe in it or is it that they, you know, they believe in it. They just want to destroy it. All right. Um, yeah. So this is where I was going to go. So there's a, there's a pretty prominent fan theory out there that this whole notion of like the dragons will die in in captivity and they end up dwindling down to the size of dogs. And, you know, that's sort of the official narrative. Yeah. That this is all sort of propaganda. And what really happened was the maesters never liked their role under the dragon lords. So -hmm. as soon as the Targaryens sort of took control of Westeros, the maesters were not nearly as powerful. Mm-hmm. And so what they somehow, they started weeding out the dragons from the world so that eventually they can make some sort of power play. Mm-hmm. This is clearly what Marwin believes, right? Yeah. And well, he, uh, but he talks out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, it does seem like he thinks something like that. On the other hand, he refers to the maesters as the gray sheep, as if they're a bunch of... <laughs> You know, idiots who are just, you know, following along. Sure, sure. And so it's it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, and I, I sort of thought that was psychologically realistic. He's yeah. probably got some bitterness. And that bitterness can kind of express both as an accusation of stupidity or, on the other hand, as an accusation of, of evil. And sometimes those accusations don't jibe very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're stupid, it's hard to be really evil. You know? Well, all right. Yeah, no, I think that... Here's, I, I think that you've got levels within levels, right? Yes. So you've got these power players as, in the maester's world. And this goes all the way down to, you know, you know drunken, drunken failed maesters. All right. And it could be that Marwin thinks that most of the, the maesters are gray sheep, but th- there are larger machinations happening in the Citadel yeah, for the higher right. ups that plan to take power. So it's possible that both could be true. Yeah. All right. So then, all right. So here's my question to you. Do you think that we will see eventually some sort of move against Daenerys by the Citadel to eliminate her or, and or her dragons? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, so far, we don't have any clear out in the open representative of such a school of thought within the maesters, right? Mm-hmm. We've got the scientific maesters, right? Let's call them. Yeah. And then we've got Marwin. And then we've got the graduate students who are kind of uh, what you know, I'm calling them the graduate students, either failing or, or not sure what to think. Sure. We don't yet have a character who's like the evil genius maester. You know, it's it's hard to have an evil genius plot without any evil genius on the stage, right? Right. So Martin released this, you know, preview chapter of Winds of Winter. Mm-hmm. And in the chapter, there's this guy named Tybald, who is a maester. Mm-hmm. 
and he seems like he may maybe maybe a couple hints that maybe he's your evil genius guy yeah okay okay that would definitely raise the probability i think that the majors the maesters will at least a few different maesters will feature prominently in the next books and i think that a lot of that will have to do with weird happenings at the citadel that's my prediction yeah yeah i think that seems very very plausible with sam having gone to the citadel clearly there will have to be some drama and some interesting happenings that involve sam right he's a major character yeah right 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 um there's no doubt um and i think marwin is on his way to meet he says he's on the way to meet the dragon queen yeah marwin and danny may be on a collision course that seems right especially given that he is obsessed with some ancient figure named the same thing as she is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) This ancient character named Daenerys. Interesting. All right, man. I appreciate your, you chiming in. All right. I thought, I I thought initially I thought I'm going to run a few fan theories by Chad and I'm going to just have him serve as a grumpy (laughs) peer referee. Yeah, sure. And you can just like play defense and just knock them down. Right. But it seems like you're as, you are as intrigued by the possibilities of the maesters as, as I am. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I, I don't think that we know what's going to happen. I don't think that there's a lot to go on at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the themes that come up in the stories involving maesters are really interesting things. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked a question. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. First two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV Plus, and we'll have a pair of podcasts quantumly linked ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. geared up for the 6th annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. 
Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now for this week's Bird's Eye View. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk to you about dragons, specifically from a medieval European religious scientific point of view. So I mentioned the Aberdeen bestiary in my conversation with Chad. Here's a little excerpt of the Aberdeen bestiary. And this is specifically meant to be an entry of natural science related to the dragon. The dragon is bigger than all snakes. The dragon strangles an elephant. The dragon has a crest, small mouth, and does not kill with its teeth, but with its tail. Be as careful as you can that you are not caught outside the doors of that house, that the dragon, the serpent of old, does not seize you and devour you, as Judas was once devoured by the devil and perished, as soon as he had gone forth from the Lord and his brother apostles. The dragon is bigger than all of the other snakes and all the other living things on earth. The dragon kills by wrapping its tail around its victim and can even kill elephants. The dragon, it is said, is often drawn forth from caves and into the open air, causing the air to become turbulent. The dragon has a crest, a small mouth, narrow blowholes through which it breathes and puts forth its tongue. From the dragon, not even the elephant with its huge size is safe, for lurking on the paths along which the elephants are accustomed to pass. The dragon knots its tail around their legs and kills them by suffocation. Dragons are born in Ethiopia and India, where it is hot all year round. The devil is like the dragon. He is the most monstrous serpent of all. He is aroused from his cave and causes the air to shine, because, emerging from the depths, he transforms himself into the angel of light and deceives the foolish with the hopes of vainglory and worldly pleasure. The dragon is said to be crested, as the devil wears the crown of the king of pride. The dragon's strength lies not in its teeth, but in its tail, as the devil, deprived of his strength, deceives with, with lies those whom he draws to him. As the devil entangles, with the knots of sin, the way of those bound for heaven, and, like the dragon, kills them by suffocation, because anyone who dies, fettered in the chains of his offenses, is condemned, without doubt, to hell. So that's a little bit of science, little medieval religious science, on the dragon, from the Aberdeen Bestiary, folios 65 and 66. If you're interested in hearing more about dragons in mythology, specifically of how it might relate to a Game of Thrones, you might check out volume two of my book, Gods of Thrones that I wrote with Aaron. In that book, we include a glossary at the end, modeled just a little bit after medieval bestiaries, but the glossary is specifically for the Snarks and Grumpkins in Martin's world. And that's all for this week. Next time on Electric Boogaloo. And I think that Daenerys is completely done dirty in season seven, but that's not a question for today. Um, and Arya just turns out to be 100% that bitch. 